millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. We've been through a tough couple of years. What the hell? Pressures are real. The fuel price increases are real. Women are so deeply aggrieved and angry. You have to think about this as a father first. And if that doesn't make you angry, you are not paying attention. It is his way or the highway. I know our country can do better. He was an intimidating bully. A menacing, controlling wallpaper. Such marches, even now, are being met with bullets. We still have so much work to do. Call the election. Call it now. What am I doing right now? Let the people of Australia decide. Jenny has a way of clarifying things. Let's make some noise, Australia! Hello and welcome to Broad Talk. Thank you for joining us for this final episode, episode seven, final episode in our election series. And yes, this episode is the wash-up. It's been recorded after the election result. Uh, It's actually been recorded at the end of the week. We don't have final figures and there has been no official declaration of each seat, but uh, we know where we are, where we're heading, and boy, oh boy, (laughs) there's a lot to talk about in this episode. So I'm going to just jump straight in, but before I do, I want to remind you, please do reach out and tell us what you think and how you have felt about the election result, you can find us on uh, Insta at Broad Talkers. We now have a new little website, thanks to Martin. Hello, uh, um, broadtalk.net.au, broadtalk.net.au. You can catch us through the email there, hello at broadtalk.net, or get me at virginia at broadtalk.net. And, of course, I'm on Twitter, Virginia underscore house, and we're also at Talk Broad. So all sorts of ways that you can be in contact. We're also on Facebook, Broad Talk, and uh, if you want to join our chat group, please do. Um, the Broad Talk Roundtable because we love hearing from you and it's been very exciting hearing your feedback since Sunday and some of you have been in touch with me saying I can't wait to hear the last episode of uh, this series for obvious reasons. So let's just jump straight in. Now we've got three 
fabulous women to discuss uh, where we're at with. Now, Chris Wallace is no um, <clears throat> newcomer to this series. Professor Chris Wallace, congratulations on your recent promotion to Professor. Chris, it's fantastic. Chris, of course, is a political historian. It's fantastic to have you along again. So thank you. Come to you in a minute. We've also been joined by Catherine Fox, who joins us again. She was in an earlier episode. Catherine is a journalist with great expertise in women's leadership, corporate leadership in particular, and the author of many, many books. And it's a new welcome to this Board Talk series, Annie O'Rourke. Annie is a communicator strategist. Um, many of you or any of you who have uh, ever lived or worked in Canberra would know Annie O'Rourke. Everyone does. She is one of those people who really knows her way around the maze of political power corridors. Annie uh, previously was a senior advisor to Prime Minister Rudd and was Anthony Albanese's first policy advisor when he first joined the Shadow Ministry way back in 2001 when he was just a baby. Um, so welcome to all of you. I want to jump straight in and get a sense, of, a, a brief touch on how are you feeling and what's your read of the pulse of the nation right now. So Annie, straight to you first. How are you feeling as a result of the election result um, last weekend and what do you think is the pulse of the rest of the nation? Well, I'm personally feeling really relieved and super excited about all the opportunities of refresh and renew and, you know, getting in and approaching some of the really difficult problems and challenges we face with fresh rigour. Um, but also, I've done a lot of travel this week around the country, though I sound like a politician, as I move around the country. But <laughs> what your saying, hard hat. <laughs> that's right, that's exactly right. But look, I can't tell you how many people, particularly not political people, are super excited about this result. And I, I'm not surprised because the result actually means that a lot of people were listening and engaging in politics for months and they engaged and they listened and they acted um, very, very strategically to get a result what they wanted. It was very clear that a lot of people didn't want the same old, same old and they spoke and people are super excited <laughs> the fact that they've been listened to and there's been a, such a, you know, it, it's such a seismic shift in our political landscape, something that we haven't seen before. And it's super exciting with these new players, new ideas, new energy, and that lifts everybody up. It's great. Well, yes, look, I, I think we can all feel that energy. I'm going to get um, Chris Wallace in a moment just to give us a bit of a wrap as to whereabouts we're sitting in terms of numbers and the position of the new parliament, what, what it's looking like. But Catherine, first to you, your, how are you feeling and what is your take on the pulse of the nation? I'm absolutely relieved as well as Annie um, and uh, and very positive. I think you're quite right. It's very uplifting. Um, slightly vindicated uh, <laughs> as somebody who's been spending several decades of their life arguing for a more diverse representation of Australia in all kinds of places. Clearly the business sector was my main area of interest, but certainly in government. Um, so absolutely thrilled and fascinated, Virginia, by the disconnect between some of the public discussion and debate, uh, indeed some of the media coverage, and what was actually happening in the grassroots electorates. And uh, I said to you last time I was on uh, this wonderful podcast 
Um, I'm in North Sydney electorate, and what I was seeing on the streets here was the ray of hope for me. Uh, I was yes. seeing people mobilised in a way I had never seen before in a highly conservative seat, and I just kept thinking, I'm not hearing this in a lot of the coverage, I'm not seeing women, yes. but I am getting a very different impression. So I did say that. I will stick to that. Uh, but and you I'm were right. You were right. And, in yeah. fact, I'm glad you raised that because I have quoted you on that many, many times at a number of events I've been at, particularly in the last week when there was there was a real anxiety where people thought we're actually just going to go back to the same old, same old. And I was, yes, quoted you saying, yeah, but I don't think, as Catherine Fox has said on Broad Talk, that we're paying attention, the mainstream media, in the headlines, to what's actually happening in those local um, community-based campaigns. And just a, a quick um, addition to that, it, it was uh, a lot of women, clearly, um, and they were voting for and supporting a woman. So this whole rubbish about women don't support, women don't back them, completely debunked. Uh, mm. But the second thing is there are a lot of men standing alongside them um, and also mm. saying this is not acceptable, this is about our kids and our grandkids and this has to change. So that was enormously uplifting to observe. Now the fact that it's actually delivered this result is um, extraordinary. I saw that those men in my own family, which is extraordinary, in the seat of Kuyong in Melbourne, out there with T-shirts and had been big backers of Monique Ryan right from the the get-go. And uh, i got to say, I was gobsmacked. I've never seen my brothers behave like that before. So, yes, men are doing it too. Chris, over to you now. Firstly, a big congratulations. You have been promoted as a professor at the University of Canberra at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation. So I'm very excited and, and thrilled for you and um, and very proud too. Thank so, you. Give us your your take on how you feel, but also given that you are such a um, you've got such an enormous brain for the numbers uh, and wrote the book How to Win an Election. Where are we sitting? What 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 is this parliament looking like? It's a an epic development in Australian politics. I think that we've we've now in a situation where Australian voters have shown themselves to be operating at a very sophisticated tactical level to deliver a very intelligent election result. Uh, as we talk now, nearly 76% of the vote has been counted. Uh, Labor's got 74 seats, LNP 57, others 15. There are five seats in doubt. Some of those contests are really interesting and close and probably we won't know the result, for example, in Gilmore in in southern coastal New South Wales, probably for a couple of weeks. It's definitely going to be a recount there as Labor's Fiona Phillips and Andrew Constance duke it out. The the fact that there is highly likely at the end of, you know, next couple of weeks, a, a majority Labor government emerge with a very large, intelligent and fearless crossbench mm. and a much diminished uh, set of coalition MPs who really, I think, have still not appreciated how strategically gigantic this defeat is for them. Uh, they're clinging on to the, the fact that their primary vote is slightly higher than Labor's. But I think anyone who thinks that's super significant does, does not understand preferential voting uh, as in, the, in the deep way that Australian voters have shown they do in this election, uh, mm. to whack the coalition mightily, to reject the kind of hate politics and right-wing nutjobbery and junk policy we've seen for several years now, uh, that's been decisively rejected to the point that the Liberals have had stripped from them by the teals 
all of the blue ribbon metropolitan city seats in Sydney and Melbourne, I think, bar one, and, and mm. there's one in doubt, maybe, maybe two. Um, it, this is an astonishing development. Mm. And of course, they are seats that Labor in a million years could never take off the coalition. Uh, the development of, of the so-called teal independence, and yes, some of the listeners will be going now, they're not all teal, they're not all women. No, that's true. But, you know, that's the way they're being shorthanded. Uh, the, that development in previously safe coalition seats is epochally important and the Liberals will either come to grips with that and change or, in my view, more likely not come to grips with it, not change, go further down the right-wing rabbit hole and, you know, Virginia, parties don't have a monopoly on eternal existence. There are plenty of parties that simply wither and die. Mm-hmm. Uh, the British Liberals, for example, uh, used to be a really important force in British politics. Uh, by the middle of the 20th century, they'd become a tiny rump and mm-hmm. now they exist only fragmentarily as part of the Liberal Democrats. Um, so they had to kind of merge with the, the UK version of the Australian Democrats, you know, the Social Democrats they call themselves. So parties can die. And if the Liberals don't read the tea leaves on this, they could die too. Hasn't it been fascinating to see already a split in the Liberal Party with some saying we we tried progressiveness, it didn't work, we need to go further to the right, and others saying, no, we need to go further to the centre. Um, I can see you laughing at, at, at that, Annie. Um, <laughs> did that comment surprise you? I think it's extremely – it doesn't surprise me, but I think it's extremely interesting, and I wanted to pick up a point, Catherine, that you mentioned about what you were feeling on the streets. Um, through my company, we do a lot of market research, and for the last 18 months we were seeing – that uh, women were not happy with the political status quo. And um, my colleagues and I constantly were saying, I wonder when the pivot will come from the Liberals because we know that they're very, like all major political parties, reliant on polling and they follow it and they track to it. And um, we were like, it has to come. Their polling must be saying the same. We were seeing it so regularly. And I was also interested that there'd be some articles, one or two in the mainstream media about women voters, but it just wasn't becoming Mm -hmm. a a bigger conversation. Yet it was there. It was there for all to see, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. we didn't focus on it. And what really made me you know, and I don't have an answer for this, but I think it's really interesting that for a long time it was clear that a whole group of women were either unhappy and running for seats and they were very talented women. You know, um, someone like Sophie Sconce is an incredibly impressive woman on many fronts, an incredibly impressive person. So there was this, you know, um, Zoe Daniels again, another very impressive person, and uh, Kate Cheney. You know, these are really impressive people. So some alarm bells weren't ringing is very interesting and instructive to me of the state of the Liberal Party. And I'd love to know whether they either thought it would go away they thought they were in too deep and couldn't so turn do, it. So do you mean they thought the, the, this focus on women would go away or the agitation to the democratic process from women would just die down? Yeah, yeah. I would love to understand, like really understand um, from those key players whether they it's, – it's, there's no doubt that they couldn't have got that polling and that research and that feedback. There, there's no doubt. But they've made made a decision – Either they couldn't or wouldn't change 
And I find that fascinating and mm-hmm. absolutely unimaginable that a catastrophic failing was coming mm. and they didn't change. And so it does not surprise me that they can't see how they might change now if they couldn't see it when it was going to cost them their jobs. You know, I heard Morrison saying this morning on radio that, oh, well, um, Australians wanted to change the curtains. Oh, I heard that and I thought, mm, I think they wanted to burn the house down. <laughs> <laughs> but I, look, I was gobsmacked on a couple of levels. Firstly, it was almost like, yeah, all these women have come in and they wanted to change the curtains and that's all they've done. It's just window dressing. But then also, wasn't this the man that said just recently before the election, I can change, I will change, I know, I'm listening to you. And just to pick up on your point, Annie, almost like, you know, that 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 got the polling. They knew they were in trouble. And he says, Yes, I can be bulldozer, you know, I, I will change. And here he is, <clears throat> despite the result, saying, Ah, it wasn't my fault. They wanted to change the curtains. Isn't that the line every Bashed wife has heard from any every abusive husband in history. I can change. Do they ever? Mm. Um, look, those comments by Scott Morrison on the election result were a, a variation on his usual theme, not my fault. Mm. You know, mm. the guy is incapable of insight. Uh, you know, just, Annie, picking up on your point about, you know, weren't they looking at their own polling? Um, the thing is Morrison went through an election previously where all the polls said Labor was were going to win and he won, right? So God was on his side. God knows where God was this time uh, for Scott Morrison. Mm. But what we've got to understand about polling is people don't read them rationally often, including many politicians, including many academic political science experts. I remember sitting in a conference uh, with a bunch of political science peeps, including some really big international wheels, as the Clinton vote was unfolding uh, and it was clear to me looking at the numbers that, you know, she was in dire trouble mm. and I went out at lunchtime to this leading American political scientist, have you seen this? And she said, oh, no, 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 it's just, you know, the order they're counting the booze. But I knew because of the size of the count that actually it was a real warning sign. And by afternoon tea, you know, she'd lost Florida, mm. it was all mm. over. But these were super experts who simply would not be open to the significance of the numbers I might say that I think superior polling by Cos Samaras was a big factor in the Teal's effectiveness. He is an awesomely good pollster and uh, and he was working with a number of Teal seats and he did a bloody good job. Um, and, and, you know, they knew for quite a while that Monique Ryan was ahead in Kuyong. It's just that no one who was told about the numbers would believe, believe it. it. Mm. Yeah. Um, Chris, I just want to pick up that because I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, when Morrison got the leadership last time, it was a very short time he had to run to the to the election. And, you know, although he, having been a party director, et cetera, before, he, you know, you don't see personal tracking on yourself unless you're a leader. But he would have for 18 months and his people around him and it was so clear. And no matter, even if you say you don't know how to read it or people don't want to see it or whatever, enough people around him are very, you know, experienced. Andrew Hurst is a very experienced campaign manager, etc. There would have been someone trying to tell him or his team that there was some issues. Uh, there's just no doubt about that. Yes, but as, as, happened, as yeah. happened with Bill Shorten, 
as opposition leader in 2019. Annie, you know better than anybody because of the amount of hours you've spent working for people at the very top level of politics. Often staffers and, and even colleagues, even senior colleagues, cannot get through to leaders who have a certain mindset about mm. themselves. And Scott Morrison, you know, everything he had he put into into that last week of the campaign and kind of doubled down louder, faster, harder on everything that had made him successful in the in the past, thereby digging himself into a deeper and deeper hole, incapable of insight, not a sophisticated operator. Is this an He's example? Gone. Is this an example, though, of a guy who's just refusing to listen or, or to pick up on, on, on an earlier point, um, can't, you know, can't see it or refuses to see it? Um, yeah, Catherine? Isn't that both? I think that um, one of the, the points to sort of stand back a little bit from I'm sure the information was there. I'm sure uh, both of you are right about that. But I think if you've spent your entire life um, not respecting women, uh, not taking them seriously, uh, never really moving on any of the major issues that were conducted. I mean, how much more obvious could it be? We were marching in the streets mm. uh, at the beginning of last year, tens of thousands of us, angry, saying this has to change. What else needed to happen? But when your entire mentality is that this is uh, certainly not my problem, uh, as Chris mm. said, but also... That's just a bolt on, you know. I'll put a I'll put a violence against women policy, and I'll bolt it, bolt it on. Not that they even managed to get to that point yeah. exactly, but this entire sort of ignorance about what we're talking about here—that women have to be, we have to have a gender lens on, mm. on the budget. We have to actually absolutely look at the care economy. We have to do some very broad rethinking. I don't think that that ever entered the ether for quite, well, certainly for the former Prime Minister, uh, but I imagine some of the other, um, of his male colleagues, and we have no evidence that it was otherwise. Uh, they didn't take us seriously. Uh, they fobbed us off. Um, it was never dealt with in any serious way. Beautifully put, uh, Catherine. We're just going to take a short break, and then when we come back, we're going to move on to now that we've had this result, what does it look like for the parliament, but also what is what is ahead of us now? Uh, where does this new world take us? We'll be back in a moment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, welcome back. Um, we've been having a fabulous uh, chat here at, at Broad Talk and there's so much more to talk about. But I do want to move on to what are we looking at now? Um, 
you know, what is the, the, the fact that we now have a substantial number of women, more women than we've ever had in the Australian Parliament? And look, uh, I've got to say, the um, organisations such as Equal Rights Australia has put a, a, a number out at this stage, even though we don't have um, the official result declared, they think we're going to have up to 38% of the Australian House of Representatives, uh, sorry, the Australian Parliament will be female. We know that the Senate is going to be female majority. Now, look, 38%, if we do get to that, it's not good enough, but it is a substantial jump from what was 31, 32%. Um, but what difference is this going to make to our Parliament? I'm interested to hear all of your thoughts on that. Will we really? see shift, change. I mean, Chris, for example, you wrote a piece just after the election for the Sydney Morning Herald that talked about a gender quake and the a tectonic shifting of the plates, all of which I agreed with at the time, but I did find myself thinking, but could it just kind of roll back once we get on with business? I don't think so, Virginia. I think we're going to see a big opening up, a big unblocking of really, you know, shocking uh, gridlock on so many policies. Labor really does have an extraordinarily good front bench. The quality of the cross bench, not all of them, I mean, you know, mad bobcat is there, but, but most of the front bench are formidable, intelligent, professionally highly accomplished people. The gender balance is much better. The ethnic mix is much better. Mm. The Indigenous presence is much better. Mm. What, what's happened, and no one's really talking about it yet, but for so many decades now, the massive pressure on policymaking has been coming from the right. Now it's going to come from the left. You've got a significant green sec, um, presence and independent presence in the Senate, and the pressure is going to be coming from the crossbench and the Greens for Labor to go further, not to be more conservative. Now, at the same time, I think there's a bit of a parallel universe thing happening. I think many people are open to, thrilled about and optimistic about that huge development and, it's, and the prospects for making quantum leaps on significant policy. Uh, at the, on the other side of the slate, in the, in the parallel universe, you've got a lot of people, you know, and I hate to use the, you know, remaining Japanese soldiers in the remote parts of Pacific Islands well after World War II ended still fighting the war, but you've got the Sky News gang that mm -hmm. are going to continue plugging away. You've got the Australian, you know, the right-wing nut jobs propaganda sheet still, you know, pouring out the propaganda. So there's still going to be a group of people that are going to cling to the old paradigm, but it has shifted. And I think one of the challenges in this situation is for, for everybody you know, all of us to review our habitual modes of thought, our habitual modes of interaction, and really kind of collectively work to establish a much healthier political culture, ways of dealing with each other. It, it can be done. You know, this is an ecosystem that can be improved. And I think, you know, even Anthony Albanese's uh, comments today on um, criticisms of Peter Dutton being Voldemort, um, which are kind of huge fun and, you know, he, he, he ticked off Tanya Plibersek, didn't he, for, for that, saying That's it. right. And, yeah. and, you know, Albo, you know, he's many things and he's also not many things. And one of the things he isn't is a, a cruel, vicious bastard taking, sledging people in, in public. So to the extent that he's setting the tone, then I think that's good. And, and it's not as though Tanya's not also an absolutely wonderful person, you know, one of the brightest stars in Australian politics and 
and long may she continue as that. And I suspect the Voldemort comment was, you know, just a bit of fun, Sean, as they say on uh, Mad as Hell. But I think, you know, Albanese is leading with a better tone. Labor's front bench is strong and has a good tone. You've got intelligent cross benches that aren't bobber boys. I think there's great hope for really fundamental shifts in a positive direction. Can I just throw this out there, though? Uh, and it, it sort of comes back to something that, Annie, you've, you've touched on. You, you were on Four Corners just a, a night or two after the election um, polling day and, among other things, talked about how well both leaders had war-gamed this campaign. They were really, really well war-gamed, very disciplined, particularly Anthony Albanese, making himself a small target. Do we have a right? He was not a small target, Virginia. Uh, well, he was not. He was not a small target. He was a smart target. This whole okay. false, we've got to take on this false binary. It's got to be stamped out. Small okay, no, target no. and hard target are used as sledges in Australian politics. Anthony Albanese actually and, and his front bench had a number of really significant policies that they failed to communicate well enough to voters, but they were not a small target. It's just all right, they didn't let, get the message no, let across. Me, let me throw this out, though. Do we have a right as women to be angry that they both leaders didn't embrace issues that were clearly that women were bringing to this election as much as they should have? Particularly the issue around violence against women. I heard next to nothing. I mean, yes, yes we do. Yes, we do. Um, because I agree with you. And when we were discussing this earlier in the campaign, at that point we were calling it the high vis vest campaign. Hmm. Mm. Um, and it continued. Now, um, I suppose you know, Anthony Albanese did turn up to Georgie Dents and the Parenthood's roundtable um, about childcare reform and so on, um, and they had made some announcements about that. But I have to say um, we should be. We should be furious about that. Um, again, you know, the lead-up to this over, well, you can go back many decades, but not, certainly in the last couple of years, there's, there's, no-one's been hiding this. These mm. are, I, really, I really fundamentally disagree, and I'll give you two reasons. In Anthony Albanese's very first budget reply speech, he announced three major policies. One was a revolutionary reform in childcare policy that then Labor did not, over the rest of its term in opposition, succeed in cutting through and communicating to voters, and nor did journalists pursue it and report it. The second yeah, thing is, the second thing is, and this is really important, this is really important, Virginia. You can't just blame media for that, though. No, I'm not. I didn't. Actually, if you consider what I just said, I mostly blame Labor for not creating the cut-through communications capacity to get the message across. So that is a huge reform from which all Australians will benefit. The yeah, second thing is... it's not universal free childcare. It's pretty close. The second thing is you can't do anything unless you win an election. And as you and I have discussed previously on Broad Talk, in an election campaign, an opposition gets a chance to communicate one or maybe two big ideas in order to win. I know. Now, I, re- I recall you saying that actually on Broad Talk, you know, three big ideas at max, thinking, oh, God, really, three? But, yeah, look, you're right in terms of campaigning. But, look, Annie, I'm interested in your thoughts. You know, I know, obviously, you weren't working on this campaign, but you do have a background in, in working with both, well, Prime Minister and, and Anthony Albanese. Do, do you... Do you think that, I mean, did, did Albo pivot very much during the campaign? I mean, Catherine's referred to the high-vis blokey campaign it was. Did you see him pivot? We've gone back to talking about the campaign, sorry. But did you see him pivot? And and do you believe um, as, as a, a observer that there is a whole bunch of good, solid women or policy particularly pertaining to women that they're going to out, roll out now? 
so to unpack that a little bit, um, I think Anthony did run a really smart campaign and his team ran a really smart campaign and I think they were well prepared for, for example, the COVID. Um, you know, he also recovered quickly from the gaffes and, you know, kept on going. Um, I think they would have had the, um, you know, the fact that they even had their launch in Western Australia, um, that was, you know, would have been considered a very big gamble, um, but they did do that and they, you know, um, reap the benefits of doing that. So there's lots of smart tactics within the campaign. Anthony was always seen as listening. He did a lot more women's events. Um, he was often seen with carers, women, children, um, mm. et cetera, which um, was, you know, um, it set up a different dynamic. But I do believe that they also worked really hard at making Morrison the focus of the campaign and they gave him space to uh, for people who they knew were unhappy with him to focus in on him. Um, and that was a very smart campaign tactic to let Morrison be the story and the focus. Um, and, you know, you, you've got to win the campaign to win the election and you've got to, you know, sometimes you've got to dial things up and sometimes you've got to dial things down depending on who, how, when, what, where people are listening to you and how you engage them. You know, significantly we would have seen some activities you know, what they call in political campaigning in the air wars, and some are ground wars. So, for example, the mainstream media kept constantly was saying, where's Tanya Plevisek? Where's Tanya Plevisek? She's not around. But actually she was in like 40 margin, you know, 40 seats, um, constantly in marginal seats, constantly doing things where she was extremely effective, both in social media that we know that women um use a lot and rely on and share with their friends and also in local media. So, you know, it really was a smart campaign. But I do also think that Andrew Hurst is a very, very good campaigner, the head of the Liberals, and they did the best they could with what they had. So I just do <laughs> want to sort of say that how difficult their situation was. And it's important to remember this because people often think that they win campaigns, but often there's a lot of things that you lose in a campaign. So Morrison went into this campaign. In the 2019 campaign, Josh Frydenberg was a lethal weapon about the economy. He was attacking Shorten and, and mm -hmm. Bowen on mm -hmm. their tax mm -hmm. policies. In this campaign, he, uh, Morrison, who take, gets a lot of credit for the winning the 2019 campaign, but actually if you look at who was one of the most effective operators, it was actually Josh Frydenberg. In this campaign, nothing to do with Labor, he was kept to his seat because of mm. the activity in Kuyong. Mm. And also what was to do with Labor is they didn't have bigger policy targets that he could go after. Mm, that mm. is really smart. And they they totally took out the ammunition from Frydenberg. And also I do want to say that Jim Chalmers and Katie Gallagher really stepped up in that space and were excellent. Mm, um, so yeah. um, the the other thing was, and it's really important to remember that this these things matter because it's never just what happens in those six weeks. It's a culmination mm, of activities. Mm. And you've got to think, look, Morrison didn't have people chosen 
for whatever reason, and again, he's part of that in New South Wales until the very last minute. He didn't have an education minister he could um, mm. rely on. He didn't have a attorney general that he could, you know, uh, um, call upon. He didn't have... Um, um, now I've got complete bank. There was another. Well, you know, there were ministers Greg for Hunt women retiring who was in hiding. You know, yeah, I mean, and Greg Hunt also um, was um, retiring. So that whole what they could have had as their health story. However, someone in that campaign, and I don't believe it to be Andrew Hurst, but someone in that campaign thought it was a really good idea to let the Catherine Deves. Show yeah, her well, colours. I mean that 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 just blew up in their. That face. would be Scott Morrison. We we're going to have to wind it up, and I, look, we could talk for ages. And I I've got a sense I can feel some books being written right now. Looking at you, Chris. I'm looking at you, Annie, as well. I want to. I, I just want to come back to though this Parliament ahead and the very different look of it. We know, as we've discussed, we're going to have a lot more women there. We're going to have a lot greater diversity, greater colour, all of that. What is this, what impact, Catherine, I'd be interested in your take on this, what impact is this going to have, do you think, broadly on the Australian public in terms of attitudes around gender equity and, and diversity? How's it going oh, to well, wash? I think it will be a positive impact. Um, having looked at, at research about the impact of women uh, in represent- representational politics around the world, in the corporate sector, in leadership and so on for many, many years, there's actually a very clear connection. When you have more women in charge, the concerns of women generally are better served. Uh, in an organisation, things like the gender pay gap narrows, There's there are more women promoted. There is a very clear connection. Um, and in places around the world where women have taken, often by quota, uh, more um, seats in, in, their, in their government, um, that has definitely made a difference to policy outcomes, the areas that are looked at um, and the action that is then taken. It's, it's no mystery. Um, mm. So when people say, oh, yeah, but what difference then? make a very tangible difference. I also think having that crossbench will be fascinating. I think it'll be energising. Uh, I think it'll be lively. Um, and I also think one of the things that was overlooked and we were all saying, oh, crossbench, oh, Sally mm. Stable got back in, um, you mm. know, got, got back in quite comfortably. Um, yeah. And I think the fact is we do have, and we've had, We've had cross benches before. This is this is going to be a fascinating time. Um, but also, Virginia, just on a on a sort of a broader level, um, a lot of people say, "Oh, what can this tell us about women and where are women going?" What this election should tell us is that a lot of men in power in this country should take a long, hard look at themselves, their level of entitlement, the style of leadership that they have been showing us. Um, it is time we did a different, did it very differently. And I'm very pleased to see that the prime minister. Is already talking about that. Mentioned it in his uh, in his acceptance speech. It is time we looked at doing things very differently, yeah. and that that I think uh, we are overdue for. That is so beautifully put. We're going to have to wrap up, but but can I just have a quick response um, to uh, Chris and then Annie? Chris, I think that was a huge factor in Anthony Albanese's victory. He was modelling a different kind of masculinity, one that didn't rely on bullheadedness, uh, kind of implied violence. And, you know, you look at people like Jim Chalmers, the new treasurer of Australia, you know, wow, is he modelling a great model of masculinity mm. in complete contrast to the toxic masculinity uh, that the, the LNP used actually as a tool of governing mm. over the last several years. Richard Miles, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Um, I think, you know, 
it's it's a winner all around this election in terms of the opportunity it provides everybody, including the Liberal and National parties, to visibly see and therefore think about themselves embracing uh, different ways of being that are just a lot healthier for them and everybody around them mm. and the it, nation. Yeah, it liberates men too. Annie? Yeah. Look, I, I'm just going to sound like a bit of caution I I admire the um, so many of those independent candidates, teals or broader, you know, men, women who've come in. But you know, it's a very hard job that they've got. It's a whole new environment. It's not an environment that welcomes independents, newcomers. Um, you know, they're going to be you know new meat for the media. Um, you know, I think there's I it's, there's no doubt they're up for it they're talented they're able but this environment is like no other and I do you know lots of people lots of parties have come and gone lots of groupings have come and gone and I just don't want there's so much expectation hope and Mm, dreams mm, on a lot of these deals mm. and it's actually really hard like you know they haven't they've got a, a very big agenda that they want to get up and it's very hard and um I think that it's just really important to remember how hard it's going to be and people are going to go after them and, you know, we need to support them and support them through their mistakes as well if we do want this diversity um, to come into the parliament and to have a say in policy, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Actually, look, it's it's a, it's a really good um, point, Annie, and, and a very fair warning. Just because we've had this result doesn't mean the parliament itself is going to change overnight or the culture is going to change overnight and it will be a hard slog. So you're right, we do need to support mistakes and we need to support the learning along the way. Um, look, I, I could go on talking about this Forever. I, I find it fascinating. And the three of you have been amazing. Um, I'm so grateful that you were all available for this final session of this episode of this series on election 2022. It's been great fun. Martin and I have really, really enjoyed this. I am going to uh, just let you all know that uh, Broad Talk is, of course, carrying on. We're going to have a little break for a week or so. And then we roll into a whole new series on Australian women change makers, which is uh, going to be a series of deep dive one-on-one interviews with some of Australia's most phenomenal women. This is in conjunction with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy, where I've had the great privilege of being a guest curator for a new exhibition that opens then on uh, opens at the end of June on Australian women changemakers. So join us for that, but we will return with our panel discussions because we've enjoyed it so much and we just love hearing from you and I get the strong sense that uh, you're enjoying it too. So thank you. Don't forget to drop us a line, rate us, review us, all that kind of stuff. The old broad needs a leg up. All old broads do. So it helps to move up the podcast queue apparently if you um, give us a rating or a review. So thank you. But my sincere thanks to every single one of you who've who've listened, um, who've been in contact or even not been in contact but have enjoyed listening to uh, all the Broad Talk guest commentators and what a fantastic squad of women it's been. I'm so, so thrilled. So thank you and thank you to Annie, to Chris and to Catherine for a fabulous session. Long may we talk. And don't forget, keep talking.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 